morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today's Friday, May the 27th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. The Gambian government says that it will prosecute former longtime dictator Yaya Jame for crimes committed during his role. So the Truth Commission started work in 2018, and it took them three years to investigate the past human rights violations of the ex-government from 1994 to January 2017. Rwanda, Uganda, Malawi, Ghana, and Senegal joined Pfizer's accord for a healthier world. Rwanda is very happy to take part in the accord together with partner countries, and we look forward to adding these life-saving medicines and vaccines to our public health arsenal. And Ethiopian pastoralists are fighting to survive persistent drought in the Horn of Africa. We'll have those stories plus sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the Gambian government says that it will prosecute former longtime dictator Yaya Jame for crimes committed during his rule. Jame ruled Gambia for over two decades after taking power in a coup in July of 1994. The Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission, or TRRC, was established after Jame left office and fled to Equatorial Guinea, where he currently lives. This week, Gambia's Attorney General, Dauda Jallo, announced that a special prosecutor would be appointed to oversee the cases of abuse laid out in the report, which include the killing of political opponents and other serious crimes. The commission recommended either prosecution or amnesty for some of the officials. For more on the story, I reached Gambian journalist Sene Marena in Seattle, Washington. Uh, the establishment of the Truth Commission is one of the campaign promises uh, that the coalition government of Adama Baro uh, made to Gambians in, in November 2016 when they were campaigning for uh, office of the president. So when the new government came in in 2017, uh, one of the uh, TRRC was one of the commission that was established to prop the human rights violations committed by the ex-president Yaya Jamme and his associates. So the Truth Commission started work in 2018, and it took them three years to investigate the past human rights violations of the ex-government from 1994 to January 2017. And what are some of the major recommendations made by the commission in this report? Uh, One of the major recommendations by the Truth Commission is uh, the prosecution of Yaya Jamme, and one and some of his key members of his junta that took power in 1994. Uh, this include uh, Sana Sabali, the vice chairman of the junta, and also uh, Aisha Tunjai Sedi, who was Jammeh's uh, longest-serving uh, vice president. And they also uh, they, they also recommend uh, for the prosecution of uh, jungulas. These are people, a special para paramilitary unit established by Jammeh who are accused of uh, various human rights uh, abuses, including extrajudicial killings, torture, and assassination. So the TRRC recommended that uh, those responsible for these uh, hideous human rights ab- abuses uh, be prosecuted by the state. And yesterday, you know, the government complied with all uh, the 665 recommendations except uh, two recommendations. So uh, mm. at least 95 of uh, recommendations by the Truth Commission 
were actually considered by the government in its white paper published yesterday uh, afternoon in Banjul. And how are Gambians reacting to the decision by the Ministry of Justice to accept most of uh, the recommendations? Uh, there has been uh, mixed feelings, a mixed reaction in the streets of Banjul, uh, but many Gambians welcome the government decision to accept all the uh, recommendations of the Truth Commission, you know, to ensure closure and justice to the victims of Yaya Jammeh's uh, brutal 22 years rule. Uh, they welcome it. Now they want the government commitment uh, towards the full implementation of the recommendations contained in the white in the in the in the white paper. And did the Justice Ministry give any reason on why they did not accept uh, two of the recommendations made uh, by the report? Yes, uh, one reason that the Justice Minister advanced to the media shortly after releasing uh, the white paper is that uh, the recommendation on the suspension, you know, and banning of the uh, top intelligence chief who was uh, accused of uh, covering evidence by painting the walls at the torture chamber of the National Intelligence Agencies. According to the government, uh, this falls outside the mandate of the commission. So according to them, this incident happened after 2017. That is immediately after the change. So they feel that you know um, they will not be able to consider that aspect uh, of the Truth Commission findings against uh, the uh, intelligent chief Usman saw. Another recommendation that the government failed to, you know, look into is the issue of banning, you know, Nigerian judges. If you remember during Jammeh's 22 years of rule, he hired mercenary judges from Nigeria who were accused of sending innocent Gambians to jail. So the Truth Commission recommend that you know, they banned those Nigerian judges from coming to Gambia. But government in its white paper said there was a technical cooperation between the government of Nigeria and government of the Gambia to support in terms of helping the judiciary with judges because they believe there was there were not many Gambian judges then. So they, you know, they, they had a technical cooperation with Nigeria to bring in judges. Most, most of these judges were doing jammes doing at the courts. Most people were sentenced without due process. Most people were, you know, convicted on charges that are politically motivated. So this has led to the, you know, a lack of independence in the judiciary and Jammeh has a total control over the judiciary. So the TRRC findings said these Nigerian judges should be banned and if possible, uh, some of them should in fact, uh, you know, face uh, 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 legal action for their actions they committed during uh, Jammeh's 22 years of uh, rule. That was Gambian journalist Sene Marena. He's the founder and editor of Alcamba Times, a digital news platform focusing on Gambian news. And Rwanda, Uganda, Malawi, Ghana and Senegal have joined Pfizer's Accord for a Healthier World. Under the accord, 45 developing countries will have access to all of Pfizer's patented medicines and vaccines, all available at a not-for-profit price. Eugene Uwimana has more from Kigali in Rwanda. This accord will see 1.2 billion people benefiting from all current and future medicines discovered and launched by Pfizer. Among the beneficiaries are 27 low-income countries and 18 in the transition to low-middle-income classification in the last 10 years. Albert Buller is the chief executive officer of Pfizer. He was unpacking the initiative called 
the Accord for a Healthier World at a news conference in Davos during the recent 2022 World Economic Forum. Through this groundbreaking initiative, Pfizer will provide all its patented medicines and vaccines that are available in the U.S. or in the European Union on a non-for-profit basis. Bora says the initiative is a potential solution to the gap in health equity, which has grown as poor countries struggle to contain the COVID-19 pandemic. We are living in a time where science is increasingly demonstrating the ability to take on the world's most devastating diseases. Unfortunately, there exists a tremendous health equity gap in our world that determines which of us can use these innovations and which of us cannot. As the time is now to begin closing this gap even more. Rwanda, Malawi, Ghana, Senegal and Uganda have already committed to join the accord. Rwandan President Paul Kagame said countries at every income level should have sustainable health security. Rwanda is very happy to take part accord together with partner countries and we look forward to adding these life-saving medicines and vaccines to our public health arsenal combined with additional investments in strengthening Africa's public health systems and pharmaceutical regulators accord is an important step towards sustainable health security for countries at every income level. Pfizer's Accord for a Healthier World is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Malawi's President Lazarus Chakwera says the good thing is that the initiative is not a donation, but rather a partnership. The beauty of this accord for countries like Malawi and Rwanda is that it is not a handout, but a real partnership that involves taking Pfizer's strength in manufacturing, Mr. Bill Gates' strength in philanthropy, and our strength in governance and combining them in a spirit of shared sacrifice to put human progress ahead of business profits and political posturing. And for Malawi, where access to quality medicines and vaccines is a real challenge, this accord means that our quest for universal health care in Malawi has a real shot. Pfizer, an American multinational pharmaceutical and biotechnology corporation, gained international prominence when it first created the COVID-19 vaccine. Pfizer's initiative could help the continent develop local manufacturing plants. According to the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the continent locally produces less than 1% of the vaccines it consumes. Eugene Uimana for VOA News, Chigali, Rwanda. Daybreak Africa continues. The persistent drought drying out the Horn of Africa is a reflection of severe weather intensified by climate change. For Ethiopia's pastoralists who have seen more than a million of their livestock perish, it is a signal that their way of life can't be sustained by the next generation. Linda Giftash reports from Gode in Ethiopia. Carcasses of cattle scattered across fields have become an all-too-familiar sight here in Ethiopia's Somali region. Despite a last-ditch effort to feed her cattle with grass from her thatch roof, Addis Ahmed Omar says they all perished. Her family is now among the 7.2 million Ethiopians who are not getting enough to eat, according to United Nations. 
She says when she was young, droughts used to occur at once, and they coped and survived with it. But this current drought is continuous and recurrent, and is beyond their capacities to manage. Drought events aren't just lasting longer, they're becoming more frequent. Some former pastoralists at a displacement camp outside the town of Godet lost their livestock in 2017. They've become permanent residents of the area, having abandoned their nomadic lifestyle to instead rear small animals like goats and grow produce. Abdiwali Mohammed Salad is the village chief. He says it's better to search for other livelihoods than pastoralism. Education and other livelihoods means farming. He says mixed farming is an option available to them in the future as a means of getting by. Climate change is projected to bring even more extreme conditions in the years to come with contrasting droughts and floods. That will also contribute to soil erosion and degradation, shrinking the available land for pasture. Within this year, experts say there is a 61% chance the region's next rainy season will fail, devastating even more pastoralists. Abu Bakr Saleh Babakar is with the World Meteorological Association in Ethiopia. It is very challenging for them to continue the same um, way of life depending on just natural resources. So the future is not, is not bright, unfortunately, to say. But that's where they need to adapt to the, to the new uh, climate condition. In the northern Afar region, pastoralists say they shouldn't have to abandon their tradition. Instead, they want more support from the government to protect grazing land and to develop programs to provide emergency feed and medication for livestock. Valerie Browning works with the Afar Pastoralist Development Association in Samara. Afar have this wealth of traditional knowledge, this wealth of what to do when it's too dry, there's no water, this wealth of how to look after their herd. But politics doesn't allow them. At a clinic 100 kilometers from Afar's capital of Samara, Biru Ali, a pastoralist mother, is not as optimistic. Surviving on just bread and rations of water trucked in by aid groups, she says her two-year-old is now sick with diarrhea. She says what she wishes for her children is for them to get an education, and once they grow up, they'll be able to achieve great things. While many say they would welcome an alternative future for their children, now faced with hunger, their focus is on simply surviving today. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Godet, Ethiopia. You're listening to Debrek Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. Let's go to West Africa in Nigeria, where the Albinism Association of the country is petitioning the government to resume free cancer treatments for albinos. The free treatment was stopped years ago because of a lack of funding. Experts say people with albinism are more likely to get skin cancer because the disorder causes them to have little or no coloring in their skin, hair and eyes. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Nigerian Cynthia Ukachi, who has albinism, first noticed the changes on her skin in 2018. When she went to the hospital, she was told it was an early stage of skin cancer and that it had started because of exposure to the sun. But thanks to a government support scheme that offered free skin cancer for albinos, she had a surgery to remove the affected areas and was treated. However, Ukachi says the malignant skin cells capable of spreading and causing skin cancer returned months ago, long after the government ended its free treatment plan. I have two or three on my neck. Yes, three on my neck. 
I have two at my back and I just have this on my forehead here. It looks very, it looks um, very small, but it's very painful and it can bleed. Without the government support, about 4 million albinos in Nigeria could be at risk of skin cancer, according to aid groups. Ukachi says she cannot afford the treatment. Every affected skin area can cost up to $350 to remove. Noticing this issue again, uh, I already know what it is, but I couldn't go back to the hospital knowing I'll be asked to pay. And the money is what I do not have. If the government wants me to leave, if the government wants persons with albinism to leave, they should reinstate the free cancer treatment. Nigerian authorities started the program in 2007, and the Albinism Association of Nigeria, AAN, says around 5,500 patients, including Ukachi, benefited from it before it was discontinued for lack of funding. Jackie Ekpele is a skin cancer survivor and AAN's president. Even the current administration started skeletal implementation at the beginning of their uh, tenure, but then reneged. Um, and the reason is simply that uh, poverty of funds and, and the fact that they cannot continue to offer this treatment. And of course, the effect is that uh, persons with albinism are dying in droves. Medical experts say albinos in sub-Saharan Africa are a thousand times more likely than the general population to develop skin cancer because of the partial or complete absence of melanin, a pigment responsible for eye, hair, and skin color. In Nigeria, myths and discrimination associated with the condition make it far more difficult for albinos to get jobs and afford skin cancer treatment. This month, during a National Awareness Day to remember people living with albinism, AAN renewed its call for the government to reinstate the free skin cancer treatment. Nigerian authorities responded. James David Lalu is the executive secretary of the National Commission for Persons with Disabilities. We had discussion with the permanent secretary of the Federal Ministry for Health for us to be able to revisit this. We are going to provide some funding support to do that. Additionally, by next year, we are going to provide proper budgetary allocation that will support this cancer treatment for our people. AAN cautions there is no time to lose as free treatment is the only lifeline for people around the country like Kukachi, who fears she will run out of time. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. In eastern Burkina Faso, armed assailants killed about 50 people, residents of a rural commune of Majawori. That's according to the governor of the region, Kano Hubert Yemogo. The victims were traveling to a town in the nearby commune of Pama, close to the borders with Benin and Togo. Security analysts suspect the violence was committed by elements of the Islamist militants linked to Al-Qaeda and Islamic State who have overrun parts of Burkina Faso in recent years. This week's attack follows two others this month in Majawori. One killed 17 civilians and another 11 soldiers. A 
now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. With that, we go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson Omali. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sports with the CAF Champions League. Ahead of Monday's final of Africa's Elite Club competition, the Court of Arbitration for Sports on Thursday ruled in favor of CAF and rejected Al Hakli's application to postpone the CAF Champions League final. CAF, the court said, was obliged to implement the executive committee decision that was taken in July 2019, which stated that the CAF Champions League winner will be determined by one-legged final. The hosting of the CAF Champions League final was awarded to Morocco after Senegal, which was the only other country that had fulfilled the hosting requirements, withdrew its bid. And staying with the CAF Champions League final, Monday will see Al Hockley chase down a record-breaking third successive CAF Champions League title, but they must do so at the home of opponents Wada Casablanca on Monday. The Cairo Giants are looking forward to become the first club to achieve the feat after winning the last two editions both under the helm of South African coach Pizzo Mitsumani, but they will be away at the Mohamed V Stadium after the Morocco Football Federation controversially won the right to stage the game, allegedly the only country to be to host the final. The game comes at the end of a long season for both sides. And now to athletics, double Olympic 800 meters champion Kasa Semeya has spoken about how she offered to show her body to athletics official when she was 18 to prove she was female. The South African middle distance runner said this in an interview with HBO's Real Sports. Semeya, who is now 31 years old, burst onto the scene in 2009 when she won the women's 800 meters world title by a stunning margin hours after the sports world governing body says she will under go gender verification tests. Staying with athletics, the Rwanda Athletics Federation has confirmed that over 3,000 athletes have so far registered to participate at the forthcoming 17th edition of the Kigali International Peace Marathon, slated for May 29th. The annual race will attract athletes from different countries all over the globe, including Ethiopia, Canada, DR Congo, Kenya. The annual race will attract athletes from Canada, DR Congo, Kenya, South Africa, USA, Israel, Switzerland, Italy, Poland, and Kenya, among others. The number could, however, increase from 3,000 after the Federation revealed that the registration deadline might be extended for another extra 24 hours to give a chance for more efforts to participate in the race. In basketball news, U.S. Monastery earned themselves a second chance to compete for the Basketball African League title after beating Zamalek in the semifinal on Wednesday. The 88-81 win ended Zamalek's unbeaten run in the ball since the inaugural season. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. You can also connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. We are also on YouTube where you can watch our videos. Just type in VOA Africa in the search function. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great weekend ahead, Africa. 
Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bubu music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 0905 and 2005 UTC right after the international news. 